Welcome to this episode of Memory Card. My name is Push Dustin, and joining me today is Stefan Reese. He is the owner of uh, Art of Nintendo Power, and he's been collecting lots of Nintendo Power memorabilia for several, several years. So, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm nervous. I don't get nervous on podcasts. What is this? <laughs> I don't even understand. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into collecting and like when you started and when did you like realize that this was actually like a thing? Yeah. So um, this actually I'm going to take us back to. Uh, so I collected Ninja Turtles for about 25 years. OK. And, like really hardcore. I have Ninja Turtle tattoos. Kevin Eastman was the best man at my wedding. I'm very much a bleed green Ninja Turtles fan. So I built that collection and built it and built it and built it and built it. And then at, at some point, six, seven years ago now. I got to the point where I had gotten everything that I was interested in, and like I, at, this was this was prior to Nickelodeon buying or Viacom buying the turtles, so there really wasn't a whole lot of like continual merch like there is now. And so like I had everything that Playmates ever put out. I had all of the comic books and all of the color cover variants for those comic books, every edition of everything. Right, just like I was done. Mm -hmm. And when I find that in, in collecting anything, when you get to that definition of done. Almost instantly, for me anyway, it something psychological happened <laughs> where it went from the collection went from being something that I was like nurturing and growing, and it was this like living, breathing organism that was part of my life, and it became this weight that was around my neck, and it was just like stagnating me. And so I was asking these really existential questions like, does this collection define me? What would happen if I didn't have it? Those kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, and this was something you and I was, were just talking about offline, at the same time, uh, my wife at the time was diagnosed with cancer, and so I was really looking for something to sort of distract me from that, right? Not, not that I was going to bury my head in the sand, but like it would be nice to not think about cancer 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. And so it was just this sort of this perfect storm. And actually, at the same time, I had, um, I've been actually working in the game industry for about 17 years now, and I... Uh, got a job at Viacom at Nickelodeon working on the Turtles. And so there was this like third component then of of wanting to be able to make good decisions on behalf of the brand, which was no longer for me, right? Like I was not I was not the guy that Rise of the N Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was pitching to. Yeah. So so then I also wanted to kind of sort of separate myself from the fandom so that I could make intelligent decisions on behalf of the brand. So that was this big, perfect storm of, of priming me. I had this huge collection that I wasn't sure that I wanted that was very, very valuable. So it was this like piggy bank that I could essentially pull from. And I had, at the time, I had had this shoebox collection, essentially, of, of games. And I did always have that like, oh, man, it'd be super cool to like have every Super Nintendo game because that was really my console, right? So I just decided that it was going to be this like wish fulfillment thing. So I started to liquidate my turtles collection and start pouring it into games and i put together a full set of north american super nintendo games in two and a half months oh wow <laughs> which is bananas yeah but that was the kind of thing like and I, I this wasn't ebay right this was me like wanting to distract myself getting out of the house and like hitting up which seems so foreign right now right i live in southern california which is like 
you know, can't you can't throw a rock without hitting a, a retro store in Southern California, right? And so like I was in a different shop every day. I had I had like a, a route yeah. that I would go through. And and I just built this collection. You know, I maybe probably maybe ten percent or less of the cartridges I bought off eBay, you know, like the very high end stuff. But uh, everything else was was brick and mortar. Mm-hmm. That was my first set. And then I ended up doing uh twelve sets of North American games. And um as I was going along, like part of as as much as I love video games, I I, I promise I'm getting to answer your question. Um, as much as I love video games, I also just loved the chase, right? I loved, I loved the difficulty of finding things. And retail games, honestly, and it's gonna make me sound jerky for saying it this way, but mm-hmm. it's not difficult to collect video games. It's just expensive. And I was in the situation, right, where I had this like piggy bank from this other collection that I was so, so really it was not, I took away the only difficult component. Yeah. And so as I was going, I was like, okay, well, like this isn't satiating the, like the hunt for me anymore. So like, what's the next thing? Like what's harder than this? And so I identified, okay, well, retail displays. So now I'm going to collect retail displays. And I had did the fiber optic signs and mm-hmm. the cardboard standees and all that stuff, right? I did all that, and then I, I kept going, and I was like, okay, what's harder than that? And I had, uh, I was looking through an issue of Nintendo Power, and if you look at the first issue of Nintendo Power, Nintendo Power number one, on the inside front cover, there was an ad for the gameplay counselors, and they, ha- they were wearing these gray jackets. And I just randomly was like, I wonder if those actually exist. Like, I wonder if those jackets are a thing. And come to find out, they are, right? And so I was like, okay, well, I wonder if I can get one of those jackets. And so I found one of those jackets. And in talking to those gameplay counselors, like that opened me up to this world of gameplay counselor stuff. And I'm like, you guys have trophies and awards and desk plaques and phones and and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, okay, so that's even harder. So let's do that. And as I was going through this gameplay counselor journey, and this is how I got turned on to the to Nintendo Power Art, mm-hmm. is I ran into a gameplay counselor. And this is so serendipitous, right? There's this one event really shaped everything because I ran into a gameplay counselor who, after he was done being a gameplay counselor, he went to work on Nintendo Power and did Nintendo Power art. And I was asking about Nintendo uh, counselor stuff, and he goes, well, I don't have any counselor stuff left, but I do have the, this art that I drew for the magazine. Uh. And I was like, that moment of just like my mind just expands, and it had never occurred to me. Never occurred to me once that that was a thing that I could go find. And I was like, what is more difficult than hunting for things in which there are one of, right? Like everything that I find is one of a kind. And so like, so that really like, and again, this was all still as I was on this cancer journey. And as you might imagine, as we continue to go, my my wife is no longer with us. And as we continue to go, uh, that part of my life got a lot harder, and so I was, and and so I wanted the collecting journey sort of coincided with that. Of like, the harder that that got, the more difficult that I wanted my collecting journey to be. Right, I wanted that hunt to get harder and harder, and so that's that's how I went. That kind of illustrates my 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 full journey from collecting video from collecting Ninja Turtles to collecting uh, original art for Nintendo Power magazine, and uh, and it really since then it it's been. Now I'm I'm so focused on like the legacy of the magazine and preaching that. So now yeah. the not that it's harder, but like the next the next iteration of that was now not just 
finding the stuff, but then sharing it because otherwise what's the point? Like I'm not, I've never been a basement collector. I've never been someone that needs to like, mm-hmm. you know, hi- squirrel these things away and only I can see them. And you know, like that's, and there certainly are collectors out there and I am not, not a person to tell someone how to collect, but that is not me. That's not how I work. Yeah. So then, then came the Twitter and the YouTube channel and all that stuff. I, I feel like I'm in my final form now, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, of of this collecting journey of like now it's 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 all about finding the stuff before it gets thrown away or mm-hmm. lost to time through you know artists passing away or children throwing things out which you know all, all of that ha- does happen yeah um so uh so it's all about finding the stuff before it's lost and then sharing it as much as I can until I can't anymore mm-hmm. um and then at that point it's all my whole collection is willed to the Strong Museum of Play in New York mm-hmm. so everything will go. It would be on display and, and preserved for future generations. Um, on a very micro scale, I think I can understand what you mean by not being satisfied with the hunt anymore. When I first came to Japan, I was looking for every Zelda game. And at a certain point, that collection is very easy to do. Like you said, it's, it's not very difficult. It's just expensive at some point. Sure. So for me, like I was like, okay, I will get every Zelda game, but I will pay under market rate for all of them try to figure out what the market rate is and then try to find a good deal, go into different stores. And that was exciting. But after a certain point, I'm just like, I'm kind of done with this collection. And now it's just sitting over there in the corner. And I'm just like, what do I do with it now? And isn't it funny how immediate that switch is? Yeah. It's so crazy. Mm -hmm. Like you go from being wildly passionate about growing this thing and then you get there and it, then you just kind of look around and say, all right, I built this thing. Now what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, know? what do I do with it? Right. <laughs> Which is actually kind of why I like what I'm doing mm-hmm. now, because even if I got every remaining piece of art from Nintendo Power ever, even if that happened, yeah. which it will not, but, but even if it did, I would never know it because I have no way of knowing what is in Nintendo's archive, and they're certainly not going to tell me. Yeah. And, uh, and I have no idea what's been thrown away, which much of it has. I have no idea what, for instance, you know, an artist, because we're talking about 30 years now, and especially like the original Japanese team, a lot of those, a lot of those artists were already older artists, right? Because they were manga artists. They were older manga artists. And so like many of them are either, you know, re- retirement age or unfortunately have passed. So where did that art go, right? And like, you know, very occasionally I'll be able to, actually it's only happened once where I was able to contact the estate of an artist and actually pull some work back from the brink. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but generally, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a race against time. And that's sort of one of my motivating factors is I have this thing in the back of my head that's chewing at me all the time that says, hey, every day that you're not finding art, it's getting thrown away. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is like terrifying. Um, but, uh, but I mean, but it's true. It's it, that that's sort of my drive to to continue to to hunt this stuff as hard as I do. Is is I'm terrified that at any moment something's gonna get trashed. Yeah. You know, I I I talked to a one of the layout artists mm-hmm. um, who in the and when I say layout, like when the magazines when they were made back then, they like were physically pasting like with glue, pasting the pages together and then photographing those. So the the actual physical artifact of that would be the layout. Mm-hmm. And I uh, talked to one of the layout artists, and she had everything that she had done, and it was you know like 
issues and issues and issues and issues and issues full of just stacks of original layouts, which, you know, it's not just about art for me. It's about documenting the production. So if I can tell a because I want to tell the story, too. So, like, yeah. I'm interested in roughs and notes and art and everything so that I can kind of put that all together and say, this is the journey for this piece of art, right? Yeah. So, like, those layouts would have been extremely valuable to me and garbage to most everyone else. But what had happened was she, at one point, went to her kids and said, hey, look, this is the stuff that mom did when she was, you know, when she was younger. Like, isn't this cool? Mm -hmm. And they were just kind of like, yeah, mom, whatever. And she recycled all of it. Oh, no. All of it went, all of it is gone now, you know? And those are the kinds of, like, that's my worst case scenario when, especially with um, commercial artists, you know, this is a job for them. So like a lot of them don't have the attachment that people externally would think that they do. Right. And same thing with, I mean, like I understand yeah, people like you and me. Yeah. Any, well, but like any, anyone who creates anything, there is this like, I don't know if it's imposter syndrome or what, but like, I certainly like, I look back at like some of the games that I've worked on that are kind of valuable. And I kind of scratch my head and go, how could something that I made be valuable mm -hmm. and i think that applies too to you know commercial artists where they're just like okay this is a job i already got paid for it why would i keep this mm -hmm. and especially 30 years ago when nintendo wasn't nintendo yet yeah. right to at least not to the american market um so like there was very there wasn't this this like idea of like oh yeah someone's gonna want this someday mm -hmm. so those are that's the i'm fighting against that all the time I think um, the the second part of your mission, like showing people and, and like, you know, telling that story, I think that's really admirable because like that is, that also gives you motivation to continue, but it also gives you a purpose to continue and it gives you, um, you know, ways to connect yeah. to the to other people and educate other people and um, also bring more attention to the collection itself. And it's also a path forward for for my mission. Right. Because yeah. like a lot of these artists. People are like, oh, how do you talk these people out of art? And a, a lot of it is just me explaining my mission, mm -hmm. which is true. Like, don't go like I, I tell people like like if you have a good story, use it, but don't go like lying. Like, yeah, yeah. If, if you're not, you know, my my I, I tell people that my collection is will do museum because it's true, right? But uh, so, but I can use that story. I can leverage that story to further my mission, right? Because, uh, you know, a lot of these artists do care about their legacy and, mm -hmm. and do want to make sure that this art goes to a good home. And being able to show them, hey, look, I have over 350 pieces of Nintendo Power art. It is, it is not even arguably the largest single collection of Nintendo Power art in the world. And it's willed to a museum, so your legacy will be kept in perpetuity. Like, that's a very strong thing for me to be able to leverage. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's, that's um, you know, as, as, as admirable as it, as it is, and I agree with you, but it's also a tool, right? Uh, because if I couldn't say that, if I was just a basement collector and I was just like, oh, yeah, this is just, this is going to be mine and I love Nintendo Power and this is just going to be in my garage, <laughs> I would not have been able to do what I have done, certainly not with, within the time frame that I've done it. Because uh, really, you've only been collecting uh, Nintendo Power stuff for like two years? A year. A year? A year. Wow. Yeah. My first piece, again, I hate referencing the death of my wife, but it is like a milestone that I can relate to. She had passed within like maybe a month of my first, of the first piece that I had gotten. And then the, like the big milestone piece that, that really kind of set me off on fire was something that I acquired at the Portland Retro Gaming Expo 2019, 
um, I was exhibiting in the museum. I was talking about my gameplay counselor exhibit. I actually put on a museum exhibit for my gameplay counselor stuff. I built uh, a reproduction of a gameplay counselor cubicle uh, in their museum using an original telephone, original television. I have like all of the stuff like actually from gameplay counselor cubicles. Oh, awesome. And, uh, and so I was staffing that event and Frank Cifaldi of the Video Game History Foundation comes over to me, who's also working in the museum, and he says, hey, this vendor hit me up. He has the shoes from the cover of Nintendo Power Issue 3, the track and field rocket shoes. And I'm like, that can't be a thing. Um, and so I talked to the guy, and sure enough, we struck a deal. These things, he didn't have them at the show, but he mailed them to me. Mm -hmm. But he also had a bunch of um, Howard and Nestor faxes that were again like i say it's not always about art sometimes it's about production material and so these were like these were noted faxes that the you know the artist and the editor were faxing back and forth for actually it was nestor's adventures but but for the comic yeah um and so he had those and we were looking through that and that's that's you know and we also made the deal for the shoes so so that was october of of 2019 so really it's been i mean a little over a year but yeah from some from really october september october ish of 2019 is when I like was like okay this is a thing that I'm doing um till now and that's that's so everything's been been within really a, a little over a year and that that's really impressive but I you know it's also all I do <laughs> to be fair <laughs> um it's uh all of my free time goes to goes to that product is there a particular yeah. piece besides the shoes that you really connected with or that you're really proud of in my collection, which is it's it's kind of I I kind of consider the gameplay counselor stuff sort of hand in hand because they were so connected to the magazine mm -hmm. that I kind of consider that one collection. But I do have a set of gameplay counselor binders, which are like like the physical binders that they worked out of, yeah, um, with all their maps and handwritten notes and all that kind of thing. It's five giant you know five inch binders of material, and I have a set of those. And like as far as like things that I feel like radiate history where like you you touch it and the hair on the back of your neck stands up those are probably the like those radiate the most history for me but uh, but also i mean i can't say that i don't absolutely love i have the the wiley ship the the physical model from that cover and it's for one thing it's massive it's it's mm -hmm. larger than a like an adult football um but uh, but it's also like one of those things where, you know, this thing's made out of polymer clay. It's over 30 years old. I love pieces that are you just look at and you're like, there is no reason why this should still exist. And yet here it is. Um, those kinds of those kinds of pieces. And uh, so and it was also I, you know, I'm very attached to it because like when I launched my Twitter account, that was like the first image that I posted. And that piece is very um, a, a lot of people have nostalgic ties to it. It's very much you know I, I talk about it a lot i show it a lot people are interested in it it's a it's a it's a it's sort of a magnet uh a magnet piece right yeah so um that's probably my favorite from like a like hey how cool is this thing <laughs> um perspective but those binders from like a historical like like air gets sucked out of the room when you look at them <laughs> you know that's that that's uh that that's one of my favorite pieces as well i was actually gonna say the dr wiley uh, statue was my favorite piece but just because of like that piece actually really showed me just how wide the the range of art styles and and the way uh production styles for nintendo power were. like i collected uh nintendo power when i was a kid and i you know read through all the issues but i never really paid that much attention to the covers or the art inside of it and then that dr wiley, uh, wiley statue really made me 
think about like, oh yeah, they did do clay models. Oh yeah, they did do like digital art. They did do like physical art. Yeah, or hey, that's a photograph of a guy. Or like, um, you know, like the, the Castlevania, everyone always asks if I have the Dracula head. No, I don't have the Dracula head. I am always <laughs> looking for it, but I don't have it. One thing that I love about the aesthetic of Nintendo Power Magazine is because they needed so much art, they had to contract out a lot of different artists. And there are tons of contract artists who only did one, you know, one segment of one issue or like mm -hmm. a couple, you know, they'll, they'll be, they'll work on the magazine for a couple issues and then be on forever. And, and all of these artists are like contributing to the same publication. And so the, the finished product is this thing that's like, incredibly diverse even issue to issue like within itself is incredibly diverse yeah you know even to the point where i have seen segments of like 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 specific pieces for a game like you know five or six pages dedicated to a game one feature where it was more than one artist working on a feature and some of that was intentional and some of that was like clearly like they like forgot something <laughs> like like there's like in there's a one of the star tropics features like there's a single piece of art that's done by a different artist and it's like okay i'm sure someone just forgot that they needed the thing to your point about like art styles yeah i mean some of it's completely different i mean a lot of people don't realize like speaking of star tropics the star tropics cover with the parrot that's paper craft oh wow that is that is a photograph of, of construction paper and it's just like and then like there was this weird like um the, the, like the Battletoads cover and like the early Battletoads cover there was like three or four issues where it was pretty clear like they were like hey can we do covers using like hypercard or whatever they're like some digital program they're using mm -hmm. i think the answer was a resounding no cuz it was like three issues of like strictly digital and they're like nope back to physical so, uh, you know, they were they were they experimented in that magazine incredibly because it was just like, OK, well, if it doesn't work, well, next month we have a different thing. Yeah, we'll just change it up. Yeah, sure. So that was, you know, and, and it also lended to one thing that I love. Uh, the other thing that I love about the aesthetic of the magazine is that it always felt to me and I don't know that I really consciously understood this as a kid, but definitely looking at it as an adult, the magazine looks like. Reading it as a kid, the magazine looked like something that me and my friends could put together, mm -hmm. right? That that's something that like we made, and the like the and a lot of that has to do with the just like ridiculous haphazard nature of the art style and the incredible like tight deadlines that they were on. A lot of that, you know, because I talked to I talked to a lot of these artists, and you know, especially the artists that are still like commercial artists today. Some of them like don't like to talk about that art because it was 30 years ago and they were under tight deadlines and it was like early in their career and they look at that and they're like this is garbage. Yeah. But that sort of that that rush like really created this like this mm -hmm. this feeling of like yeah this was like put together by me and my friends. This is something that we could have done in an afternoon. And clearly it wasn't but it like but it but it gave that aesthetic. Yeah, that's really interesting that you say that. And like, um, I think gaming media back, th back then was really, I mean, it still is, it's really deadline driven and really tight schedules and everything. And sometimes you, you get that, that feelings of, um, like you said, that you could create it yourself from a professional gaming magazine. But like, you know, you're talking about tight deadlines. And so like today, you know, you, we take for granted yeah. that everything is digital. Right. And so like your deadline, yeah. like you could be still working on your piece five minutes before mm -hmm. your deadline and then you email it off and you're done yep. back then like 
you have to also think about like not only did they have to like send that physically to someone else, but most oftentimes that person they have to send it to is in Japan. So so like that's that's some transit time. So like not only did you have these tight deadlines, but you can't work up to the last minute. You have to work up to three or four days before the last minute. Yeah. You know, so like the the as tight as deadlines are now in a digital era when they were physical Mm -hmm. and most of the actual like putting together of the publication was done in Japan, they were physically mailing art to the Japanese artist from Redmond. That's kind of crazy. Uh, I didn't realize that so, Nintendo Power yeah. was, I like I knew that the the start of it was very hands on by Nintendo uh, NCL, but like I didn't realize that they actually approved every issue in Japan. Yeah, they did. In fact, uh, if if you watch the High Score documentary, Gail Tilden talks a little bit about it, where her and Howard uh, Howard Phillips were um, flying to Japan for every issue, and 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 helping with the publication there, you know, hands on. Um, it wasn't until around issue 70, basically the, uh, the advent of the N64. So the, the magazine followed the trend of the industry, and around the N64 was when, you know, 2D had completely fallen out of favor in the game industry, yep. and it wasn't nostalgic yet, it was just old-looking, mm-hmm. right? If you made a 2D game, it wasn't nostalgic, it was dated. And so the magazine followed suit, and it wasn't really until the magazine went almost entirely digital. Occasionally, you would get a cover that was traditional but but generally by by the N64 era the magazine was totally digital and that's when they brought it in house mm. so that there was no longer um there was a a studio called Workhouse later it was called V Design same same studio but that was a the Japanese production studio that was actually putting the magazine together and so Workhouse and V Design kind of took a back seat when they brought the magazine in house and were actually working on it in Redmond with actual first party staff. Yeah, Nintendo of, of America staff, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you can see it happen in the credits too where um you you'll see less and less people credited as illustrator and more and more people credited as uh like digital post production. Ah. Uh. That sound means that we're putting this episode on pause for just a moment so we can briefly explain how you can support Memory Card. If you enjoy our content, you can show your support by leaving positive reviews on your podcasting service of choice. Four or five stars and a few kind words go a long way when it comes to convincing others to give the show a listen, so please do so if you find the time. Spreading the word of Memory Card is very helpful. If you know anyone who's into gaming or history or both, then maybe you should consider sharing Memory Card with them or anyone that you find anywhere. Every season, we strive to reach a wider and wider audience, and you can help. If you're feeling extra supportive, you can head over to patreon.com memcard. Every single one of our patrons gets access to early and ad-free episodes. Higher tiers include bonus episodes, shoutouts, and more. We certainly hope you'll check it out and consider becoming one of our lovely patrons. Once again, that's patreon.com memcard. And if you think about it, If you become a patron, you'll never have to hear this ad again. (laughs) How sad. (laughs) Thanks for taking the time to hear us out. Let's get back to the show. How do you feel about Nintendo Power as like a magazine or like looking back? Do you feel like it's like the pinnacle of magazines or is there like another one that you really enjoyed? 
I mean, uh, I was a Nintendo Power kid, like, but I have, as an adult, I have no illusion that it wasn't like just a straight up marketing tool. Like, I get that, right? I understand <laughs> what the magazine was about. I didn't when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So, for like, for honest reviews of things that weren't Nintendo related or things that were Nintendo related, yeah. you know, for actual like news dissemination, like, sure, like most other publications are, were going to be better, right? You know, I think you would get more. Uh, editorial value at the time from like an EGM versus versus Nintendo, which obviously it was a first party magazine. So yes, of course it was going to be a shill. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think for people of that generation, Nintendo Power was one of the most important magazines for them. And certainly I see people getting the most excited about Nintendo Power, right? Mm-hmm. Every so often, you know, because some these contract artists that I talk to, they'll they'll have worked on Nintendo Power, but also EGM or also whatever, right? And so they'll have this other art, and like people just aren't as excited about it. Mm-hmm. Like they just they just aren't. That even I've I've noticed is reflecting reflects in uh like things like LinkedIn now when you look at because like you look at people's credits of like oh like awards or honors or whatever like people who are in the industry or were in the industry when Nintendo Power was publishing and like a lot of developers have like, oh yeah, I was in Nintendo Power for this issue. This like they they really sort of vocalize Nintendo Power more than any other publication by far. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, so I think to a to a certain generation, I think that probably means the most to to people. Yeah. And and to me it just it just I have just like collecting anything, it's it, nostalgia is king. Mm-hmm. And I am certainly the most nostalgic for Nintendo Power. Uh, otherwise, you know, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. How do you expand your collection? I mean, we kind of talked a little bit about this, but how do you uh, expand your collection? And do you have any tips for people who are trying to get into, you know, collecting, not necessarily uh, Nintendo Power, but just collecting in general? You know, it's, 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 uh, I have to be a little bit guarded with what I say because I don't want to create my own competition. It's, that's always walking a line, right? Like, yes, I want to share at every point that I possibly can. Um, that's the point of all this. But I also don't want people, you know, backdooring deals on me and that kind of thing either. Yeah. But it really is all about almost 99% networking. And things that externally look like luck are, are really hustle. Mm-hmm. It's creating your own luck, you know, making opportunities happen. And as far as like tips, you know, I, I classify things like art as, and I'm doing air quotes, you can't see, but I'm doing air quotes, buying things that are not for sale. Right, that's sort of a, a class of things. It's same, similar to like um, point of sale items and signs yeah. and that kind of thing. It's just like things that aren't typically for sale, and and or or things that people would have large attachments to. I think my my biggest thing is that when when you're communicating with someone, it's mm-hmm. not about it's not about buying the item. You should not go into this saying like, okay, I need this thing from them that I think they have or that I know they have. It's about building the relationship. So that when that person is ready to let go of that thing, you are the first person that they think of. Mm-hmm. It's about planting seeds. It's not about acquiring items. Some of the craziest stuff that I have acquired, it was me building a relationship for sometimes of like a, a year. My one of my, you know, I've had I've been blessed to have two Nintendo World Championship cartridges over my career. And one of those was me cultivating this relationship with a former employee and them going, well, hey, you know, 
I think I have this box in the garage somewhere. If I ever come across it, I'll definitely hit you up. You know, you'll be the first person that that I contact. And a year went by that I, you know, and 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 then they they found the box, and the box had a Nintendo World Championships cartridge in it. So you know, it's it's about setting yourself up for success, so that when someone is ready to part with something, you are the first person they think of, and, and not to be pushy, <laughs> be the furthest thing away from pushy. Just the hey, if you ever want to let something go, you just let me know. You come to me first. Making people understand that you are the best home for something, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing that I think is probably, uh, you know, a little bit underrated, people don't understand how effective this single phrase is, is what else you got? You should always, 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 always ask everyone what else they have. Because even if you, so like, and this happens to me, this is, this is, really advantageous i think for people to do a lot of like yard sales estate sales that kind of thing where um you know there's like a table of something and they say oh yeah hey they have playstation games or whatever and you're looking through them and then you don't know that they have mm -hmm. you know a thousand nintendo games in the back that they haven't brought out right that's so like as far as like very easy tools to remember and to utilize that's that's just for collecting in general just remembering to ask what else someone has I had gone, this was an offer up thing, and I had, it was for a Steel Battalion controller, or like a Steel Battalion box set. And that was the only thing that the guy had listed for sale. That was, that was what I was going for. Yeah. And so the magic phrase, what else you got? I ended up uh, leaving there with half of a Dreamcast set and, uh, and just like just tons of other stuff and like promotional stuff. And this guy had been in the industry. So like there was like E3 swag and all this. And he just kept bringing out box and box and box and box and box. And this was, a deal that I made happen simply by asking him what else he had. Mm -hmm. So that that's that's probably my best, my single best uh, general collecting tip is just to remember to ask what else people have. Yeah, and like sometimes people don't immediately think about these other things. Like you said, like he was in, if he was in industry, he has the swag and stuff like that. He might not have thought about that as like something that he could sell or that he might not need anymore. Yeah, or or like they'll genuinely not be able to find something. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, I have this thing. And if I find it, then it's yours. You know, I've gotten follow-up phone calls like that. Don't be afraid to, you know, part of this is going to be, for some people, I think, moving outside of their comfort zone. Like you need to not be afraid to give people your phone number, your email address. You need to make yourself accessible, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Making yourself accessible to strangers is sort of part of the deal. I don't want to like shame introverts and that kind of thing. But like being extroverted is absolutely a boon if you want to be a collector. Like I, I had said, building my social presence, you know, at this point, if you, if you put Nintendo Power into, like, my, S, my, my search engine optimization is at the point now that, like, I, if you put Nintendo Power into Google, it, I pop up before Nintendo does. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that, like, that's the kind of, like, but that's because I have, I've put myself out there so much that it's, I, I've made it incredibly easy to find me. Mm -hmm. And that's just something like, yes, people are very uncomfortable with that sometimes, you know, putting yourself out there on the internet, on the scary internet where like people can find you. Is there a risk, inherent risk to that? Sure. Have I found it to be worth it? Yes. Would everyone find it to be worth it? Maybe not. I'm not you, right? But the more easy you are to find, the easier you are to find, right? Yes. <laughs> like, so, you know, there have been certainly even, even Nintendo Power art. I'm sitting next to a, a frame of reader-submitted envelope art right now, which is 
devastatingly difficult to find because it was art that was generated by children. Nintendo did not, uh, did not send it back. And they seldom published, you know, very much information about the, about the artist. Mm-hmm. But like that art, for instance, the gentleman contacted me on Twitter because he had just literally Googled Nintendo Power art and there I am, right? So like in that case, like that's, that's another sort of example of where what looks like luck is me spending time making myself accessible. Yeah. Right. And then, and then, you know, that's, that's my earlier work paying me dividends. So that's, that's sort of just another, I don't want to call it pro tip. And again, like, I understand that like being, putting yourself out there like that is very difficult for people for, you know, that's why I wouldn't really lead with that. Like if I was giving people tips, but like, but it's true that the more accessible you make yourself, things will start to come to you. Yeah. And building that brand. Right. You will have to, like, I don't, you know, I used to, I was the kid out there at yard sales at, you know, five in the morning. And I'm just, I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to, there's so much, my time is so much better utilized now because of the work that I've put in previously is now paying me back. Yep. Those connections that you built, the branding that you've built, it's, it's all helpful. Is there a particular cover that you um, really, really like and that you really uh, want to see preserved? That I don't already have? Um, so there are two covers right now that I know their location. They are in the, they are with the children of the artist. Really, I have to, I have to, as, as like trapped it with, by my ego as I get sometimes and how like there is this like thing of like, oh yeah, this is my legacy. It's not my legacy. It's their legacy. Mm-hmm. And, and I have to remember that sometimes. So like sometimes when I find things that are like in the possession of children, that kind of thing, I have to check my ego and be like, okay, you know what? It's good enough that I know where it is. It's good enough that it's safe and in the hands of someone who loves it. That's good enough. Yeah. There are two covers that I desperately want that I know their location. I know who has them, but they're in the hands of the artist's children. And I just, did I set it up so that I was like, hey, if you ever do decide to like let that go, talk to me? Sure. Yes, absolutely. But but further than that, do I push on that? No, that would make me feel really gross and dirty and awful. But it's the, um, the Link's Awakening 50th issue cover uh, with the owl and the sword. Ah, uh, yeah. Know where that one is. Kills me that I don't have it. <laughs> and the Empire Strikes Back Yoda cover, uh. which is one of my favorite covers. And also know where that is. Breaks my heart that I don't have it. Another one that I just, I, it's not on my radar at all, but the um, one I was, I was talking about of the bird. Uh, that the papercraft bird, I would love the Star Tropics cover. I would love to know where that is if it exists. I kind of think it probably doesn't because it was such like a hodgepodge piece. The background is sculpted right in like actual like actual models. There's like a there's a a, a keyboard on the beach and there's like a couple little uh, animals in the background. Those are actually sculpted pieces. The bird is a photograph of a papercraft piece mm. uh, made out of like um, wrapping paper. Um, I don't, or like an origami paper or something like that, like a, 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 an interesting print. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel like that that was probably thrown away. You know, a lot of, same thing with like a lot of the maps, like the maps, most of those level maps were just photographs of a television that were then physically stitched together. I have come across one example of that because really 
even compared to like original art, something like that, I think the the people who created it were like, okay, I took the photo, now it's trash. There's no attachment to it. Right. So I I do have the map for Dragon Warrior, the 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 overworld map. I actually have the the collaged piece for that, but that's that's the only one that I've ever been able to find. A, a lot of the pieces, honestly, the a lot of my big ones that I wanted to find, I have found. Um, the Aladdin cover was really big for me. The uh, Secret of Mana cover, the dragon, is beautiful cover by Dan McGowan, who is no longer with us. That was earlier when I talked about uh, pulling pieces from the brink after someone had passed away. That was that was who I was talking about. Dan McGowan was an amazing commercial artist that did a, a lot of covers, and I was able to get most of his um, most of his art back from his estate. That's really great news that you're able to uh, preserve them. Yeah. The Ninja Turtles cover, obviously, mm-hmm. <laughs> was probably one of my biggest ones. That's actually another Dan McGowan piece. We haven't found it. It could be somewhere because, like, Dan was a commercial artist for, you know, most of his adult life and so not just Nintendo Power. So, like, there's also, like, Celestial Seasonings boxes. And because, like, back then, like, almost every ad you saw was it wasn't a photograph. It was, like, a painted version of whatever that was, mm-hmm. if, even if it was a tea box his estate is just filled with with art like that so like it could be somewhere we did find so i could actually i've at least can like scan it and archive the image i do have the photograph the the photo positive that that dan took of the piece before you know that he that's essentially the piece that he would send to nintendo right the photograph that he sent to nintendo yeah to get approval i have that it's uh, so so i could like you know all all i need is a is a like an overhead projector or something like that, and I can preserve. So that piece is preservable. But as far as the physical artifact, I have no idea where it is. Because, you know, some of the stuff too, like, um, again, you were sending physical art from the US to Japan, and that was kind of a black hole for a lot of, a lot of art. It just kind of vanished, and the artists just never saw it again. Mm-hmm. They were supposed to send it back, uh, but that often didn't happen. Um, and really, really, the artists had to be sort of their own best advocate for that. They had to kind of harp on Nintendo to send them back their art. Um, and if they didn't, chances are that they wouldn't get their art back. Yeah. And, and who knows where they are if they were just left in Japan? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, it kills me. It kills me that like, you know, I've, you know, that's the stuff that that keeps me up at night. Like where mm-hmm. all the stuff that was never returned. Where is that? Yeah. And the, the, the maddening part is it, it you know, because you say, oh, well, it has to be somewhere. No, it doesn't. They could have thrown it away. It could be gone. Like, it could easily be gone. Especially, you know, in a place like Japan where space is a premium. But that's also why I'll, you know, it'll keep me busy forever because I'll never know. <laughs> I'll never know what's gone and what's not. So. Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to create like a checklist because it's, it's unlimited because there's also like things that were scrapped or things that were revised and stuff like that. Yeah, it's maddening. <laughs> but, I, but I love it. Okay. As long as I love it, that's all that matters. Well, we um have to start wrapping up. But is there anything else that you'd like to add, or uh, something that you'd like to talk about before we wrap up? Sure. Yeah. Um. Uh, you know, my whole goal again. We've talked about this before. Is is to share this collection. And prior to the current global situation, um, I was supposed to start getting out there and uh and going to shows and exhibiting and that's still the that's still the plan i'm still going to start getting as soon as i can get out to conventions and start exhibiting you know in a basically like pop-up museums mm-hmm. and so so i just like i would say 
Well, first, obviously, like if if there's a listener out there that knows an artist or has art that would love to help me out, um, you know, I am, am again very accessible on Twitter. It's at Art of NP, or if literally if you search for Art of Nintendo Power anywhere, you'll find me. But yeah, so absolutely, if there's an artist or someone who knows an artist out there or knows where a piece is for whatever reason, absolutely contact me. But also, if you know you have a local art sh- or you have a local convention. All I ask basically is that they get me there, right? So like if it's if it's you know, I don't mind driving. So if it's if it's, you know, rent me a van and give me a hotel room and I'll come to your show. Part of my sort of own safety net is that I don't monetize the collection like very intentionally mm-hmm. because, you know, I, I feel like Nintendo can't really get mad at me. They can only get so mad if I'm if I'm not making money off of this. Yeah. Um so yeah, so if 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 you're out there and you're listening and you you want to see this collection, you know I I'm mostly on the West Coast, but I'm happy to travel more. Um, you know if you have a favorite show and you want to see me there, tell the people running that show. You know make them aware of me, send them my way. We'll have a conversation. I actually also just started a um, a coffee Ko-Fi whatever um, account to to direct fund, and so if you support me there, that's what the two things that that direct support go to is framing because framing is crazy expensive but i have to do it because that's that's how i can safely share it i can't take art that isn't framed to a convention right that's just like well and it's stealable right you could just be gone right a portfolio could be gone instantly yeah so i have to frame it and in in 2020 i spent thirty thousand dollars on framing just to kind of give give people an idea and i'm happy to self-fund as much as i can but i certainly would rather put thirty thousand dollars towards art then framing, if you directly support me through through that, um, then that's either going to go to framing or to getting me to a show that can't afford to bring me there. You know, places like I'm going to do Portland, I'm going to do E3, I'm going to do CES. Those shows we've already talked, and they can afford to get me there. Those are big shows they can afford to get me there. But smaller shows, you know, across the country, I would love to go. I'm happy to go. It's just that I can't really self fund that. So yeah, so yeah, direct funding will help get me to shows that can't afford me and uh and but yeah absolutely if if there's a show that you want to um to have me at please let them know and i will absolutely be happy to talk to them well thank you so much for your time and uh for coming on and talking to us today sure absolutely anytime That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Our intro and outro music was crafted by talented chiptune composer Jamatar. You can find more of his bangin' beats by searching Jamatar, that's J-A-M-A-T-A-R, on Spotify or visiting jamatar.com. If you have any feedback on the podcast or would like to recommend a topic, feel free to reach out to us via Twitter, at MemCardShow. Or you can visit our website, MemoryCardShow.com. If you'd like to follow Ben and I, we can be found at SuperBentendo and at PushDustin, respectively. Have you considered supporting Memory Card on Patreon? If not, we hope you will. Currently, we're supported by quite a few awesome people, all of which get access to early ad-free episodes and bonus episodes. This list of awesome people includes Jackson Bertoli, Taylor Bias, Cody Sam, Michael Strickland, Courtney Cotton, Harrison, Jose Acosta, Jorge Bajija, Manuel Vitella, Ray Schneider, Shala, and Nick Callis. 
All of our Patreon info can be found on the support section of our website or on patreon.com slash memcard. We'll be back really soon with some more gaming history goodness, so be sure to subscribe and leave a review if you've enjoyed the show. We'll see you soon.